Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast, your birth to the best stories in boating. Each week, my colleagues and I will bring you everything from salty stories to thought-provoking trend discussions, as well as interviews with the most interesting characters to ply the sea. Whether you're listening from the boatyard, your slip, or hopefully well underway, we're glad to have you aboard. Welcome back to the Power and Motor Yacht Podcast. This is Charlie Levine, Executive Editor, and today we have a, a very special guest, a extremely well-known and respected custom boat builder based in North Carolina who's built some amazing boats that have won a whole slew of tournaments and fished around the world. Um, gorgeous vessels, incredible craftsmanship, and just a, a, an all-around great guy. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the show Mr. Paul Mann. Paul, thank you so much for making the time. Well, I appreciate y'all for uh, for having me. It's, uh, it's quite a delight. hope I can uh, give some insight on, on me and my lifetime of boat building, which has been 32 years straight, and uh, I look forward to it. Great. Yeah. So going, if we go back in the time machine, I w- I've done a little homework on you. I've only had the opportunity to, to meet you face to face a couple times at boat shows or on the docks. And, um, but I have fished on some of your boats. I, I think the last boat that you built that I fished on was the Alina down there in Aruba. And it was your typical, you know, 25 knot winds, six foot swells and chop and, just awful <laughs> but uh saw the the seaworthiness of your boats firsthand and you know those guys fished it without a problem so been a big fan of yours um tell me about how you got into this and how you built your first boat the uh bench you bench you mentioned the elena the elena was built for the monsoor family out of aruba and uh that's an interesting story as well that particular boat in that bottom literally was built to run that Caribbean Sea. And that's one thing we were able to, to offer all of our clients. But we'll start off where you're at. I started off in boat building and really starting to love boats when I was very young. I grew up around the boating industry. I grew up around the Dare County area here and looking at all these great boats that the builders of that time were building. And, and they became my mentors. I mean, when you're sitting here as a young kid and you're looking at these boats and you're looking at the shapes of them and uh, the and how they look and how they perform, you don't realize it at that age, really what you're looking at, other than the, the aesthetic looks of a boat. And it caught my eye as a kid and I was very interested. And of course, my, my passion was going into fishing itself. So the, the people that brought the boat building to me would have been the the pioneers of the boat building industry back in the day. My father was very close friends with Warren O'Neill, and I watched the boats that Warren O'Neill built as I was very young. I grew up around the the Omi Tillet era when he was building boats, and he was well well beyond his time and his thinking and things. And his influence influenced me and the style of boat that I wanted to build. Big Ricky Sr., he, he was building beautiful boats at the time, and his, his style of building, his style of looks, really had an influence of, of how it caught my eye and, and the, the lines and stuff that I wanted to achieve at the time. Probably one of the biggest mentors and influence I had was Sonny Briggs. Most people, they always hear about uh, the Ricky Seniors of the world and the Ummy Tillets of the world and the Warren O'Neills of the world, and they all had a very influence. They influenced me heavily. But Sonny Briggs, when we started working together, he started in his backyard in a little barn, and we started building smaller boats. And then we graduated up from there. And then he formed his own company called Briggs Boatworks. And I was still very young. I hadn't, I hadn't even decided to be a boat builder at the time. But the way we learned how to build boats was from the bottom up. You learn from the design factor all the way to the finished product. There was no specialized people in boat building at the time. Everybody did all the aspects of boat building from the beginning 
to the end. We, you know, we didn't have guys who just did electrical and one guy just did interior work or one guy just does, does this or that. No, we had to do it all. So here I am learning boat building from the bottom up, whether I liked it or not. That was just wow. part of doing the job. That's and, amazing. And working with Sonny Briggs, he, he made me a, a better boat builder. He made me a better carpenter. I had some carpentry skill to begin with. I took carpentry and different things through high school and worked with home builders. And then I was lucky enough to run around and, and work in only tillet shop with him some when he would let me. I was so young, he, he'd let me come in there and mix glue and nail planks and do things. And that's something most likely a lot of people that are listening to this don't understand. All these builders built different styles of boat, including myself. But as mentors go, you're looking at the people I mentioned. You're looking at it started out with looking and watching what Omi and Warren O'Neill were building. Then it went into what Ricky Scarborough Sr. was building at the time. Then my biggest influence was working with Sonny Briggs and in his shop and and what we were building at the time. And you can never forget a big influence on me. And I modeled my first boat off of was Buddy Kennedy, known as BC. Mm -hmm. Buddy Kennedy had one of the best running boats in the ocean, an all-around running boat. But BC never built what would we would call today as, as some sort of a yacht or something. He built utilitarian boats to work every day and run in a heavy sea every day off of this coast. And that's what everybody was looking for. And he, he, I say he had it down as good as anybody. He stuck to his basic designs and mostly all single screw boats. And they were light, a lot of dead rise, a flattened, a flattened uh, dead rise aft. It pushed easy, but ran good in this sea. Ran good side two, one good head two. So it was uh, a good all around boat. And that's, that's the boat that caught my eye when I decided to build my first big boat okay. were, were the boats that Sonny and Buddy Kennedy were building at the time. And what people don't realize, all these builders at that time, we were all building plank on frame boats. At that time, there was, there was no coal molded jig boats even being built here, period. That came later on, which I then adopted later on as well. But, all these builders that I mentioned that started me, they, they taught me how to build a plank on frame boat from the beginning to the end. And that was setting it up with battens instead of computers, battens being the way you would shape your boats. Um, okay. And to give our, our listeners a bit of a, just background, a plank, plank on frame, you know, the diagonal planks, can you just sort of explain that for, for our folks and, and what the advantages are and, well, you're looking at, uh, if, if you're just comparing two types of boat building, you have a plank on frame method, you have a coal molded method, uh, and you have a method that comes out of a, out of a mold, which would be a, a molded boat coming out of a, a solid mold itself. And those are your three main types of building. They built these three types of boats in a, they may have changed the materials that they were building them with, around a little bit but that boils it down to the essence you'll have three types of boats it's a it's either it's going to be a molded boat out of a mold or it's going to be a cold molded boat or it's going to be a plank on frame the plank on frame boat was generally built out of out of white cedar or juniper boats started out even with the juniper juniper uh engine stringers and things and the way you would set you would set the boat up, you would build the ribs, which we called frames, but you would build the ribs out of the boat, out of white cedar. You would cut them into the shapes that you wanted the boat to be. Once you had all those put up and you had the skeleton basically built of your boat, then you would plank it and you would vertically plank it with juniper. Historically, most of it was three and a half inches wide by three quarters of an inch thick. If you took that as a base, some people built thinner, some people built thicker, depending on what you were doing, but that will pretty much take it in. That would probably take in over 80% of my boats. Start with the, uh, 
with the strip planking fore and aft, you would plank the boat, you would plank the bottom. Most of your early boats were just planked. And then some of them were planked and never were fiberglass put on them. They were just planked, clear glued, painted, and put overboard. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is worth talking about in a little bit. Um, but the, the amount of power that was given to us back, let's say in the in the seventies and early eighties, you know, you didn't have a you didn't have the powerful motors you have today. So the boats were weren't designed for such motors that you have today. But Plank on frame boats, single motor. They were light. They they ran good. Um, the bow decks were normally made out of plywood. Decks were plywood. The hull itself was made out of out of white cedar. And then when I started building boats myself, I would do it the same method. But then I would put a layer of of Akumi plywood on the outside of my boats. Um, and that would keep the boat from what they call washboarding, or you start to see the, the plank showing through the boat, through the paint, things like that, to try to make a cleaner finish. And this started the kind of the metamorphosis of boats that I built in my lifetime. I was, I'm going to call it blessed. Some people call it a curse. I call it a blessing. I was, I was blessed to build through the boat building era of plank on frame and then moved into coal molded jig boats. I was blessed to build, start out building charter boats that we made a living with and that metamorphosed into boats that travel all over the world. And you feed them diesel fuel and they'll take you anywhere you want to go because they produce their own power, they produce their own water, they produce everything for you and all the amenities of the nicest motel you've ever been in. All this was a metamorphosis that went that I went through in my 33 years of boat building. And it's been a very interesting ride, but my roots go right back to that strip planked plank on frame boat. And I love it to this day. And I will eventually build another one or two for myself, small boats, not <laughs> big boats, something I can maintain and, and won't drive my wife robin nuts with <laughs> so those a- those early boats like you mentioned mostly charter boats um designed for fishing out of the outer banks um blue marlin fishing offshore fishing uh yes, single screw very efficient and then would correct me if i'm wrong but was that sort of as the carolina flare and that whole look and everything did that kind of get popular as you're saying and then you know this style of yacht and more and more people using them and, and, and spreading them around and the desire kind of and, and throwing all these systems in them and really making them traveling machines. Was that all part of that metamorphosis? Yes, that you just you, you just described the whole metamorphosis that basically not just me, but every builder here was going through me, Ricky. Omi, all these, when they were started building these boats, people were coming here to, to look at our boats because a few, and I could give you names that people did this, but a few of our boats started traveling up and down the coast. These boats, remember in the 60s and early 70s, these boats didn't travel much. You built a boat, it pretty well stayed in the area that you're in. It fished the area. It, Traveling wasn't that popular. And then all of a sudden, the boats started traveling up and down the coast to different tournaments and to different styles of fishing. They would come here and fish this summer and spring, but in the wintertime, they would, they would travel south for the sail fishing in Florida. They would mm-hmm. go to Florida, maybe to the Bahamas. They started stretching out a little bit. They started traveling. They started carrying enough fuel to go more than a one-day's trip. They would start carrying more than more fuel. This metamorphosis is what created this venue of boats we have today but when these boats started traveling of course more and more people started seeing them well yeah now i'm gonna speak for myself i'm gonna speak for paul man growing up here i didn't know that we were fishing out of the roughest inlet in the world i had no idea that hatteras ochre hatteras and oregon inlet were some of the roughest places you could fish out of and we fished day to day it was nothing to fish 18 to 25 mile an hour wind every day. We, wow. didn't, we, didn't, we didn't know any different. 
Well, what I learned later in life is when you take these boats and travel with them to other places, they have a lot less wind and and, and much calmer seas. And and the boats were had a stylish look to them, which you mentioned the Carolina Flare. We put flare in our boats, and and we the boats were a very stylish look. And when they started traveling, people started seeing them. They started coming back to this area and seeking these builders that were building these beautiful boats. And which happened to be my mentors, and then me, of course, later in later in there, and and they would come in. They go, oh wow, I, I love to look at this boat, but can we put this and this and this in it? And the engine manufacturers are coming out with a new motor, and it's going to have a such and such. Can we put two motors in it? Because the the southern builders, the Florida builders, were already building a multi multi motor boat. And I could I could name lots of names that are the Robiviches and the Merits and and the different old school builders that were there that are still building today and they built beautiful boats and did then, but they they were already a a, a hair ahead of us when it came to building very flamboyant boats to look at. Their their boats were beautiful and they were putting two motors in them and they were doing it for certain reasons as well, and all that metamorphosed into the boats that you have today out of this area i mean it wasn't until the boat started leaving that people started coming to dare county and looking for this style of boat because all of a sudden not only did it look good it was outperforming everybody right that's really what it it came down to yeah and you know those styles of building you mentioned with wood and plank on frame and and coal mold a lighter boat than your typical production boat right and so you guys were, you know, that 30 knot threshold and then it became the 40 knot threshold and these boats, I mean, these giant boats flying around at 40 knots. Do you, is that material you're talking about part of how you did that? <laughs> you're talking about a 20 knot threshold, then a 25 <laughs> knot threshold, then the 30, then the 40. Oh yeah. It's, it's, yeah. All that came about in, in my lifetime. Um, and I'm, I'm going to use myself now instead of all these other builders and different things. We'll, we'll talk about how myself, how it how it worked for me. Um, the first boat I built for myself, the name of the boat was the Mad Hatter. That was my boat I built to charter fish. And that was hull number one. Hull number one. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. Hull number one. And I, uh, I modeled that boat off of looking and studying what I saw on Omi's boats, and the biggest influence on that boat was uh, Captain BC, Buddy Kennedy, his boats. I was like, man, if I could build a boat that run like BC's boats, that would be something, you know. Now, growing up, as a child growing up, all I ever wanted to be was a mate. I mean, that was it. I figured if I was a mate, I, was, I had the world by the tail, and I would never be anything else. I just can't wait to be a mate because being a mate at Oregon Inlet, was a big deal. If you were a mate at Oregon Island, that means that you were probably as good at fishing as anybody in anywhere you could go in the world. And so I wanted to be a mate. Well, I was a mate. Okay, I made it for years at the fishing center. All right, that was great. And then as I got older and and started to look at boat building as as a career, not as for me being boat building, just working for somebody else. I was just planning to be an interior carpenter. And as as a carpenter, an all-around carpenter. You couldn't be an interior carpenter then. You had to be an all-do-it-all carpenter. Woke up one day and said, hmm, I believe I can build one of these things. And they said, you can. Just go ahead and build your own boat. Wow. So at that time, that's when I I grabbed the bull by the horns and decided I was going to build my own charter boat. And I was going to become a captain. I was a man. Oh, I'm already a mate. I want to become a captain. So I went down and I got my captain's license when I was 20 years old. And I started running a boat And when I was 20 years old. Me and the mate were the same age. People would come to the boat and they would be confused. They're looking around. They're waiting to see an older guy show up. <laughs> now look at him. I go, look, uh, your life's in my hands today. And trust me, we're going to get them. So y'all just hang tight. We're going to have a good time. And I built the great charter business even at, at a young age. But the um, when I built that first boat, I was – I can't say I was scared because I was too excited and too wanting to do well to be scared of doing it. I knew 
I knew how to build every piece of that boat. So I, boom, went into boat building, started building my first boat. It came out. Well, as soon as my first boat came out and I started fishing it, immediately people started coming to me wanting to build, wanting me to build them another boat. And these were all local fishermen. I built a boat to charter fish with. It was no frills, no thrills. It was a, a motor and and motor rigger chairs and a head and off we went. We went fishing every day and it fished every day. I averaged about a hundred and at that time I was averaging about 180 days fishing a year out of here. And I couldn't fish anymore because all of a sudden people wanted boats and I started started building boats and then I couldn't I couldn't fish any more days than that because I had to start a boat and finish a boat before I went back to fishing. And that's the way my world started when I was in my 20s. I finished my first boat when I was 25 years old. And after that, like I said, people came to me, wanted build, wanted me to build boats. So I decided to build a boat building barn is what we called them then. So that's when I built my first barn in Man's Harbor over here in man's harbor and uh people often thought that i i was um i acquired the property and different things from family but i didn't uh my side of the man family in man's harbor my grandmother sold all our property off during the depression and when i decided i wanted to be a boat builder i wanted to come back to man's harbor i wanted to come back to man's harbor to live because i love it and i also wanted to bring my business to man's harbor so i came back over here and i had to buy land back one little piece at a time to try to put my barn on it so that's what i did i actually bought okay. the land here from a, another family i always wondered that if if your family if that's why the name man's harbor was was from your you know legacy <laughs> or something well, that's that. That's one reason I'm mentioning it because a lot of people actually believe that that you know that maybe my dad set me up in all this or something, and that didn't happen. I started with a block plane and a hammer and the will and the energy that nobody could tell me I couldn't do something, and that's that's all it was. It was just I just purely willed myself through all this, and wow. and I was never arrogant enough to think that I couldn't learn. I learned. I learned from everybody and and all the builders then were more than gracious enough to tell you their little bit of a trade secret they may have had to make something a little better. And boat building was a lot of fun. And, and working with your people was a lot of fun. When I was boat building, when I built my first boat, then I started my second and third boat, fourth boat. It was in a barn here in Man's Harbor. The barn was 50 by 60. And after my fourth boat, the barn got too small. People wanted more more boat and more and bigger boats than my barn would hold. Whoever thought a boat, a charter boat, would be over 56 feet long? Nobody. Nobody had nothing that big. You know, well, oh, that's too big. You know, <laughs> that's average, a lot of boat. Your average boat then was 48 to 52 feet. And... Uh, and uh, they quickly went into the 55s, 56, 57, 58s, you know, very quickly because we learned that they would run better in a sea. And back to the motor thing, when I built my first boat, the most popular motor then was like a Detroit diesel at the time. Caterpillar had motors, but Detroit diesel kind of had to market. And I had one of the first 892s, which would had a a whopping 735 horsepower, okay? 735 horsepower. I mean, are you kidding me? We're getting 735 horsepower to put in a single motor boat. That's the bomb. And so I put that in there. And at that time, all these different engine manufacturers had their own conversions. And I actually got mine from Covington. Uh, Covington was, was here in North Carolina. And I bought my motor from Covington. Covington conversion had twin turbos, 735 horsepower. The thing ran, I mean, it ran excellent. My boat would cruise, I could cruise 20, 23 knots pretty much every day. And and I was pushing her about mm, 1,900 to 2,000 RPM. She turned 2,350. And at 1,900 to 2,000, people say, why are you pushing it so hard? Because I, I ran it at 1,800 and 1,700. And I found that I burned the same amount of fuel as if I turned it at 1900. But yet, instead of making 21 or 22, I was making 23 to 23 and a half knots. And I wasn't burning any more fuel. 
I'd fuel her up every day, so I knew exactly what I was burning every day. And I was going by daily fuel, not burning by the hour. And uh, anyway, that's how I ran my first boat. It was a plank-on-frame boat. The first a lot. I don't. Even, I couldn't even tell you exactly how many plank-on-frame boats I've actually built out of 40, 40 hulls. But um, I'm gonna say at least uh, at least thirty. But building that first boat was such a a great thing for me, and and I was not scared and willing to try anything. But motors came along. It was it was seven hundred thirty horsepower, and all of a sudden the horsepower. They, the motor in motor manufacturers had like a, a horsepower race. Who can build more horsepower quicker? And you had Detroit Diesel that was going into different different ways to create more horsepower. Caterpillar was coming along and divine, and and they were they were also uh, designing horsepower increases in all their boats and all their motors. Excuse me, in all their motors as well. And it kept an escalation going along. And you've got these escalation of powers happening. And as a builder sitting here and you have a client come up, of course, they want the latest and greatest. So here's part of that metamorphosis we talked about earlier. My boat started out as a charter boat. And next thing you know, you start getting more and more power. And then all of a sudden, you're starting to build two motor boats. And mm-hmm. then the two motor boats start getting more and more power. That means you have to have a design change in your boat. And that was you, right? You you designed your own hulls. I designed all my own hulls. I did. I was uh, I, I was very fortunate enough to learn from those that I felt knew how to design boats. And I really don't believe when I think back, I don't believe that anybody I learned from had a naval architectural ticket. I don't believe so. I do not have an architectural ticket myself. Just real world knowledge, time Just on the real water. Real world knowledge and the. But I have had a lot of marine architects come to me and ask questions. <laughs> That's got to feel good. <laughs> how it does this and how it does. Yes, it was. It's quite a feather in your hat when they'll come to you and they'll, they'll say, well, how, how come your boat does this or does this? And you actually have an answer. Yeah. That's, that's as real world as it gets. And I'll tell you what made the, the, the fisherman designer a better boat builder was like Buddy Kennedy would build a boat and he would run it for the season and then build another one the next year. And he would sell one boat a year, whatever he was on. When he finished it, it was for sale. Now, mm. If you wanted to buy Buddy's boat in April, you couldn't pick it up until November because he's going to finish his charter season with it. And he would tell you that. Oh, That's yeah, yes, sir, you can buy it. Yes, sir. Put a deposit down on it. And you pick it up in November, such and such a date. Nicely seasoned by the time you get it. (laughs) He would take his rods and reels off his boat and you would get on and there's your boat. That's how easy it was. And, and at that time, man, it was just, uh, all the boats were, were built and designed by fishermen. And I was doing, I wasn't selling my boat from time, you know, every year I was keeping my boat because I I love my boat and I worked hard to get it. So I I wasn't exactly selling it every year. It wasn't for sale. But when you take a boat and you fish two or 300 days on that boat in every sea condition in the world out there from storms to slick calm days to rough days to side two, head two, stern two, following seas, you learn how to tweak that bottom to actually run in these sea conditions. And that's where the bottoms came from. The original designers here in this area, that's how these bottoms come to be, is actual getting out there and riding on that hull and finding out what you want to do to the next one to make it a little bit better. And that's what I feel I've done through my boat building career is take my boats through all this metamorphosis and try to design the best running bottom I can design at that time. When I'm going to say that at that time, because here's a, here's that, that the love hate thing that you have as a builder and a designer is you're designing boats, but your boats are always in a metamorphosis. They're always changing because of the power you're given and the amenities they want in a boat. Yeah, You can look at my boats from the mid-80s and then look at my boats in the mid-90s and then look at my boats in the 2000s and you see three different boats. A lot of builders don't have that. 
because they started out, let's say they've started in the last 10 years, their, their designs probably didn't have to change. All they've had to do is modify for speed, but they haven't had to modify their look any at all. Where in the beginning, I had to modify even my look on my boat some to uh, accommodate the amenities and the size of the boat that was being built for that client at that time. And with that being said, then I came to a wall and I can't remember the year exactly, but I'm going to say it's within 12 years ago that 13 years ago, 12 or 13 years ago that I come to a wall where the plank on frame, the builders that were building plank on frame, they started, you know, either passing away or, or going away and or getting out of boat building in general or kind of aging out. They were aging out and the method was aging out. And I look around and I'm, I'm one of the last of the plank on frame builders when I'm looking around. All of a sudden it's like, hmm, I'm one of the last of the plank on frame builders. And I'm looking at these boats and I look and now all the newer age boat builders that are getting in it, they've all switched to a a coal molded jig boat okay. where they, they are having somebody design the boat or they're helping design the boat and they have changed the method of boat building. Right. And you get the jig a, and you work from the jig and then you, you glass you get it. The jig, you build the boat on the jig, you flip the boat over, you take the jig out and you have a hull left over and then you go from there. So I understood the concept and I've watched a lot of them go together and that's when I started building my first jig boat. And the first jig boat I built was a boat that's still fishing today. It's called the Qualifier. That was my first jig boat. And uh, he came to me. He goes, let's build a jig boat. Well, at that time, I was like, hmm, sounds good to me. He's willing to let me build a jig boat. I ain't never built one in my life, but I know how to build a boat. I said, we can't, we can't mess this up. We can't mess it up because it all comes like it's a kit. So there's no way to mess it up unless you have the wrong materials in the hull. And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to build a jig boat. Let's build my first jig boat. So we did. And it's it's an absolute blue marlin magnet. And he's winning tournaments. And the boat runs unbelievable. It's 56 foot. And he runs it for charter. It's a, it's a, It still is a, a two-motor charter boat. Uh, it's got a pair of uh, C-18s in it today. And it's it's just an unbelievable running and riding boat. One of the driest boats I think I've ever built. You uh, talked about learning, and a part of that, too, then was some of the materials, the epoxies, all that stuff kind of got way more advanced, too, correct? And, every, and you yeah. jumped in on that as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you and, – and the boat building in general – through this metamorphosis of 34, 32 years of, of boat building, yeah, a lot of the, the materials have changed. You went from so much raw material to composite materials. A lot of the stuff went into a lot of composite materials. You have composite materials for the hulls then, and then foams came about where you were using, starting to use a lot of foams, whether it be Divinacil or Clegisil or are there's a lot of different foams kunzo board came all of a sudden that these different factories started popping up and these people start bringing you the wares and trying to sell them to you all right here mm -hmm. here's a new product we have you know it's called Corsell. we want you to try it and you kind of looking at it sideways like hmm do i really want to put my reputation on the line on a particular product and I won't say because all everything I've mentioned are all great products and they've all proven themselves to be great products. And it's just after that, it becomes something of a um, I'd rather work with this product, this product than this product. And this is why. But when we started building composites, the boats started getting their bigger and faster and more power. You wanted to build something lighter and stronger. And that's what composites started doing for us. Okay. Even it, even into the jig boat era, it became you started looking at ways of of lightening your boat up, but not compromising on the strength, yeah, and the materials of the boat. And that's really what I strive to do later in life is is to do that. And I, I don't build a real small boat. I, my boats are fairly big. I always mm -hmm. tell everybody I build a I build a big wide blunderbuss I, I build a big heavy i build a big wide boat and i'm not a i don't build a real narrow go fast boat you know 
I wasn't ever in the 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 we'll call it the the speed race to see who can go the fastest. Um, if you wanted to be in a speed race and go the fastest, you can design one to do that. But that speed boat that goes the fastest is not going to be your best fishing boat or the yeah. most comfortable out there. I want. I felt like if I wanted to go a knot or two slower than maybe the speedboat over here. But once we got to go fishing and we're fishing for 10 hours straight, I was a whole lot more comfortable than he was. Yeah. No, I, I, I buy into that philosophy wholeheartedly. Right. Well, a lot of people do. And it, and it's, and it works for a lot of people that there is a seat for that. There's a, there's man told me, he said, there's a rear end for about every seat. And there's people that want that seat. <laughs> and that's a good thing, you know, and, Everybody likes to, everybody likes to go fast, even myself. Sure. Um, when it's when it's but, nice and calm and you're cruising down the ICW or something. Yeah, oh yeah, you get out there on a slick calm day, you can really show your speed off. But when it gets really bad and rough, yes, that's when it counts. That's when to me that's when your boats start to shine. And I've been very fortunate to when it gets really bad and ugly out here, most of the time you'll find one of my boats leading the pack, not following the pack. And I always find that to be a really, you know, people look look for certain boats. I won't say names and stuff like that, but they look for certain boats. Man, I, it's rough today, and I'm getting behind him because he's going to he's gonna plow them down. It's going to be a nice ride. Huh? It's going to help me get home today. I'm not going to get killed. And our fleet, when I was fishing, our fleet, I mean, we held together like that a lot. We all lined up and run in lines, and and you always look for you, you the one that can really can really pave the way for you. That's the one you're looking to get in the front. Yes, and, sir. And a lot of a lot of times, my boats were leading the way, and I always felt like that was a feather in my cap. You know, I always I know my boats are very good in the ocean. They're quite seaworthy, and they perform their best in rough water. In the beginning of this, you mentioned a boat that you fished on called the Alina. Alina was a jig boat that I built. I built it for the Monsoor family out of uh, Aruba. They, uh, he owns one of my boats, and his brother owns one of my plank on frame boats that he bought. And, right, which was the prime time, which I, I, I also fished on uh, years ago. Yeah, Captain Butch Cox. He's Captain the man. He, was, uh, he helped put a lot of this boating on the map. Benji brought his name up. Butch Cox is a great, he was a, a great captain. And he would take his boats and go places that he was a pioneer in taking and going to other countries. I fished the prime time myself with Captain Butch all in the Bahamas, the Turks and Caicos and Venezuela and I don't know, a lot of different countries on that particular boat. That boat has seen its fair share of countries that we can't go to now and mm -hmm. some of the best fishing in the world. And he, he brought that to a lot of us. He really did. Um, excellent captain, excellent guy. I think he's pretty well loved around the world. He's about like myself. I think he is, uh, he, he's finally gonna, gonna retire himself, which, uh, he deserves wholeheartedly. There's nothing he'll ever have to prove in the fishing industry. That's for nah, sure. Yeah. And you don't want to play pool with him either, I learned. He's a pool shark, that guy. <laughs> he, no, he's not a shark because he won't play you for money. Oh, okay. <laughs> he'll play you in a tournament and you better have you you better bring your A game. <laughs> no, but the you yes, the Naira now. So those two brothers, Eric and what's his brother's name again? Binjo. Binjo. And they are side by side and, and those guys in their in their marina in Aruba. But when I designed the Alina, me and Eric sat down in Aruba and we decided what we wanted to build for him. This is interesting when it comes to custom boat building because you can build a boat that everybody says, all right, here's my boat. Here's my, here's my 58 footer. This is it. You know, you, you get my 58 footer. Well, when you came to me, I could sit down and I would tweak my design a little bit to fit your style of fishing. If you're a bottom fisherman all the time, you don't need as much dead rise aft as some of the others. You want to be you want to be a little more stable. This was the days before the the uh, stabilization came along, which is 
very popular now. Everybody wants some sort of a stabilizer. I won't name names, but some sort of a stabilizer, you know, stabilizer boat. This is before stabilization. We we as designers had to design that stabilization. We can design that stabilization in the boat, but it's a give and take. Everything in boat building and everything on the bottom of a boat and how it runs is a give and take. You give a little bit, you lose a little here, you gain a little there. And how would you like to take and to sit down and design your own boat that will give and take what you want it to be? And I, I wouldn't let the owners design their boat, but they would come to me and tell me what they want their boat to do. And I'll say, here's what we're going to do. We can give a little here, take a little there. and This is going to be better for this particular sea condition. But this is what you're going to lose. This is what you're going to gain. Now, how would you like to have that? And I found that me being able to do that kind of separated me from a lot of builders because I was able to do that. And I found the the owners of the boats really appreciated it. One being Eric. Eric goes, Paul, I'm getting tired of getting killed in the Caribbean. We have a trade wind that blows 25 to 30 every day. Our slick calm would be you on the East Coast, that would be your hurricane season. Time <laughs> that we are slick comp, and it's the truth. It's they have that trade wind, and then when they these things start pulling off Africa and shooting across to us, as we all know they do, when that happens, that sucks the air out of the Caribbean. People, all those people know that or not, but it sucks the air out of the Caribbean. And you, any and July, August, and September is the only time that is fairly calm in the Caribbean. Right. That's it. Other than that, that 25, 30 mile an hour trade wind blows all the time. Now, he wants to go over and fish the Dominican, which I have fished a lot with him and with the prime time with different ones on the Dominican and all over the Dominican. The, uh, I've, I've been very fortunate in my boat building career. The boats that I've built have carried me places I never thought I would get to go. All the way to Africa and different places that my boats have been, and I've been invited to fish, and still getting invitations. And it's a it that's part of the the boat building world that I really appreciate now that I'm getting a little long in the tooth is being able to go and fish all these different great places in the world on your own boats, and that is pretty darn cool. But the um, look back to the the Monsoors, and I'll be I'll be quick about that. When Eric come to me to build a boat, he goes, I'm getting tired of being killed in the Caribbean. The only thing they had then were production-style boats. Won't name any names, but production boats. And he goes, they're just not. They, we just can't get from point A to point B to fish like we want to fish. I said, okay, Eric, well, let's build you this boat. And how long do you want it to be? What's the length that I have to work with? He says, 58 is the, the, the length I'd like to stick with. Okay. I wanted to push him out into the 60s, of course. Um, just because I think it would run better there, but he wanted to be at 58. So we took his 58 and I added some dead rise forward in the boat and I carried his dead rise a little further out, raised his chines a little bit, but I created a boat that would run better in a heavier sea. And there's no doubt about it. Nobody in the Caribbean can keep up with it. Even the old primetime can't keep up with the Alina when it gets really bad rough and mm -hmm. the primetime runs as good as any boat I ever built. And it's because I just tweaked it a little bit. I tweaked that bottom to help Eric do what he needed to do right there in that Caribbean. And he, he loves the boat. She sees fish. He's won turns with it. He wins tournaments with it. It's quite a family boat that he's got now. And um, being able to tweak it really did the job for him in that boat. He can then run from there to Bonaire or Curacao, or he can shoot her right across the Caribbean back to the Dominican. And he, he felt, solidly safe on the boat doing it knowing it's going to be rough he knows the boat will will take the sea and he could do it now what what he lost he has a pair of c18s in that boat but what he lost on that boat was um she's uh she'll top out about i don't know 35 knots max she can have a 30 knot cruise and he cruises her about 25 26 knots there in that sea good heavy-duty tab so you could push that push that forefoot and that bow down into water. You can go fast in a heavy sea as long as you can keep your boat glued to the water. When your boat starts coming out of the water, that's a large no-no. You want If you want to go fast in a heavy sea like we have designed these boats to do now, they you have to keep them glued to the water. You have to have a very good tab system to do that. 
there was another aspect in the design factors of these boats that came about that helped everybody. I don't know of a builder right now not not using it, but back you know, 15 years ago, nobody used it. And that, that's the word that you'll hear called convexity. Convexity is where we put a little bit of round in the bottom. With putting a little bit of round in the bottom allows you to run heavier, run harder in a heavier sea. It actually helps the water come out from underneath your bottom without catching on those chines. The older boats, when you're running along and you're and you're, you're running along and all of a sudden, boom, you feel something go boom. Normally right up underneath your windows, feel like you ran over a rock. That's that's where we had a straight, straight bottom and not a convexity bottom. And a straight bottom, the way the water comes off, creates a concave looking look on the bottom. And that's what cups and creates that pop. When we started putting a little convexity in the bottom, we found that we let that water free fly out from underneath of the boat. And no all of a sudden, she was a soft entry, soft entry. And you would probably, you probably saw a lot of that on the Alina, where she would go in and out of those seas without popping and hitting, hitting hard. And that's the reason it would do it. It's, um, it's just a design factor in the bottom. And Very I don't think cool. you can find a boat today uh, coming out of the Dare County area that doesn't have some convexity in it. And that's what helps us all, actually. Everybody. Interesting. Now, I, I did want to ask you. There's a story behind that, but I won't get it. There's a big old story behind that. I bet. Now, but you've built some really big boats as well. I know you built an 81-footer and a 77-footer. And yeah. I've watched these videos where you guys are moving that hull from your shop down these rural roads on a trailer <laughs> you know, pushing up telephone wires and stuff that that's, that's gotta crazy. be some stressful business. Every, you got this multi-million dollar, gorgeous, brand new cruising down route one or whatever the road is. We would, uh, anything that was below 70 foot, if it was under 70 foot. I could actually put it on the trailer and carry it all the way to Juan cheese from man's Harbor and, and launch it off of a travel lift in Juan cheese. Um, that was a, a pretty much a normal thing. But anything over 70 foot, we would actually leave Man's Harbor here. And at the end of Man's Harbor, there's a, a ferry, a ferry division, a state ferry division where they maintain and build our North Carolina ferries. And they have a what is called a sink lift down there. And the state was gracious enough to allow the builders in North in, in Mans Harbor to go down there and launch our larger boats at the ferry division, which um, was uh, uh, was very nice of the the state to let us do that. That kept our heritage here alive, even though the boats were getting bigger. There was uh, even to this day, uh, my wife Robin, man, she was very uh, a very large part of this of getting it started. Her and one of our boat moving people here, we created a thing called a boat builders corridor. And that is from Mans Harbor, the village of Mans Harbor, all the way to Juan Cheese, from Mantio, all the way to Juan Cheese, because there were builders in Mantio. We got together with the power companies and the the uh, cable TV companies and the, the different line companies that are out there. And we they got together and lobbied all this and they carried it to these people and said, look, here's a heritage that's going on in Dare County today. And this is what we need to help us get from point A to point B. So they started going in and they said, they asked us what the footage was. We told them we needed over 20 feet. They actually went in and started designing everything and raised all their lines up. Wow. So we didn't have to get up there and actually physically push these things over the boats. They was, I hate to even tell you, in, in, in the beginning, we'd get up there and do it ourselves. It looks so sketchy. It looks so these sketchy. things over there, we ain't even thought about. Wow. They had the power lines and don't slap them together. We, we knew what not to do, but it was just part of what we did. And later on, the power companies, we'd call them, they would come in and they would send escorts with us and they would actually lift them for us, which got much safer, of course, when they 
Lish Meekins and Robin Mann got together and they started creating this boat builder corridor and they were able to get all these different companies to raise these lines so that we could safely move these boats around well, it was a big thing as this never talked about and a lot of people don't even know it exists but all of a sudden you get out on the road and you look and you, the lines are kind of higher right along here than they are anywhere else that's the reason they were that's amazing that's, that's just a little, little behind the scenes story a lot of people don't know about some north carolina brotherhood right there that is it, you know, and I'll tell you what it is, it's the county and the state recognizing us boat builders as being part of the heritage of the whole water industry and working with us. And that, that's really what you need. You need that to, to work in the favor of, of the manufacturers in the area to help, you know, to help move them forward and, and to help move them forward in the future. And you're... Here in the harbor, there's still myself and and uh, let's see, Paul Spencer still builds boats here in Man's Harbor. And there's still a lot of boats rolling out of this harbor sure. and going away on these corridors. And there's still boats being built in Maniota running down that corridor. There's still boats being built over on the uh, on the Outer Banks itself, and they're coming right up 158, and they're still going through a corridor. So, Paul, the the biggest news lately that you've announced um, after you just launched last year, you launched your 140th hull, right? The man cave, a 63 footer, beautiful boat. And then uh, beautiful. a few weeks ago, you announced your retirement uh, and that you're going to be moving away from the boat building business. So uh, curious what the next chapter is for you and Robin and um what came about with that decision? Well, we, uh, Robin and I, we, we both, through the course of the years, I've, I've had a lot of, of health problems that never slowed me down. I never looked at my health problems as being too, too detrimental for myself. I just worked through them. And this last one I had was a, um, for, for some reason, I couldn't tell you why. Could it be? when I wrestled through school or could it be charter fishing running rough days or, or just being rough on my body period, probably that. Um, I had a lot of neck damage in my neck and it got out through the communities and, and through the boating industry that I was having back problems or something, but it was not, it was actually neck problems. And they went in and I had a surgery done where they fused four, of my vertebrae together and uh, replaced uh, three of my, my disc with synthetic disc and they're creating a, a whole bone in my neck. And when this started to come out and come along, I'm the kind of builder that I, I want to be in my shop working alongside my guys day in, day out. I always felt like in my business that if you came to man custom boats and you wanted a boat built, that you kind of wanted Paul Mann to be there and you wanted him to be a big part. And, and I, I take every one of my boats very personally. And I, I have a large hand in every build of being there and being part of that build. And when I saw myself being unable to get out there and work with my guys hand in hand, and that's when I started deciding, well, maybe, Maybe it's time I, I throw in the towel on this boat building. But I looked and a lot of we have we have four children and we have three daughters and a son. And nobody was really interested. None of them were really interested in coming in and being a part and taking over the boat building. So we really weren't bound to any heirs or kids coming along to pass it to. And we looked at ourselves and we like, well, you know, none of our children are interested in boat building. They got their own lives and doing very well, very well on their own. And they didn't, they weren't there. They weren't interested. So I looked at Robin, she was looking at each other. And sure enough, she ends up having to have a neck surgery as well to cure some, some problems she had in her, her back area, her neck and shoulders. And so they ended up doing basically the same surgery plus a little bit on her. Wow. So I looked at her. I said, we need to focus on our personal health now 
instead of focusing on this business as we have the last 32 years. I said, let's get ourselves back in shape again. So when we started finishing up Hull 140, I quit taking orders for boats. Okay. And we went in and we gave our employees uh, like a six-month notice that we would probably be downsizing and shrinking the company over the next year. And at that point, we would decide whether we were going to actually close the company or not. And after Robin had her surgery, I had mine. We decided that with our age that we would go ahead and retire the man custom boats name wow. and shut down the facility. And we had some excellent employees. They were, you can't, you can't do this without good people. If you don't surround yourself with good people, it's impossible to do what we do. And we were surrounded with really good people. So we, we exited our people the best we knew how to do. And um, they were happy for us. They, nobody was ill about it. Everybody was very happy for what we were doing. And, um, and we still stay in touch. And, of course, they're constantly calling and wanting to know if we're going to start up. Let me know when you're getting ready to start again, <laughs> ready to go. And I'm like, well, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're actually going to shut it down. So our next chapter in life, I can see, is we're going we're gonna to retire man custom boats. I'm going to actually build another, another building next, very close to my residence, and I'll probably build me some smaller boats in it. I, I love boat building. I love designing, and I don't know that I can walk away 100% myself away from it. I, I like it too much. Um, I look forward to building myself some boats. And I'm not saying that I'm going to get into boat building, like small boat building or something. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I'm, I can't just let a 40,000 square foot facility go and I've got everything it takes to build the most beautiful yachts in the world. And I love to build stuff. I love to build all kinds of stuff. So I look forward to building a larger garage, a, basically a barn. Just like I started in and uh, equip that thing with the, the finest of tools that I have that mean a lot to me and get in here and start my second chapter. There, there's going to be a lot of trout and a lot of redfish in my future. Okay. I really do enjoy fishing and our sounds and stuff I always have. So I have a feeling the inshore fishing is going to see a lot of me. And I'm going to do a whole lot more duck hunting than I have been in the past. That's, that's, one of, that's my favorite passion anyway is wing shooting. And I see a lot of that coming down before I get to where I can't, I can't pick up my gun anymore. But uh, I am, I am how, going from 12 gauge to a 20 gauge, so I am getting older. <laughs> how old are you now, Paul? 62. Okay, so so I'm envisioning like some nice wooden skiffs running around in the sounds in the future. Is is that you think my crystal balls working? Oh, your crystal balls crystal clear. <laughs> uh, I, I foresee several of those running around in our sounds in the future. Okay, uh, I've got I've got stuff on paper already. I'm excited about building some smaller boats for myself uh, and designing them the way I want. I want to design something I can fish on and, and hand down to my grandkids and stuff. And, and uh, I've got nine grandchildren, so i got to build a lot of boats. But um, the something I can do for them and different stages in their life, of course. But uh, I've got them from 16 to, to four uh, grandchildren. And I really look forward to spending a lot more time with them and being a big part of their life. And maybe them coming in here and helping me building so many small boats. That's what I really hope will happen. Some of them are very interested in it. And some, you know, just, you know, kids are just kids. Interested today, maybe not tomorrow. We shall see. Well, that's exciting. And you've been very generous with your time today. Thank you so much. I, uh, I wish you and Robin all the best. And uh, excited to see what comes out of your, your shed there. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure it's going to be beautiful. Uh, oh, I, I look forward to it too. It's uh, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to put a lot of the fun back into boat building for me because I won't be on a timeline, and uh, that's probably the biggest thing in boat building. I was, 
I, I really grounded myself into doing several things in boat building. And one is, is being on budget and on time. And I was able to pull that off throughout my boat building career. And, and now I'm, I'm finally, that's not going to be an issue is having to be on time all the time. So I, I look forward to that. Good for you. Well, you, you've earned it and, uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all's time today and it's been, a, it's been enjoyable and I hope I was able to answer some of your questions and a little bit about myself. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Paul. And for all you listeners out there, if you want to check out some of the Paul man boats we we've reviewed over the years, check out pmymag.com. And thanks again. And uh, we'll see you on the water. Thank you, sir. All right, Paul, have a great one. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating. Or you share us with your friends on social media or on the VHF. Anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us. Thanks again, and until next time, we'll see you on the water. <laughs>